Heath Monsma. Hi, I'm Ella Von Beyer. And this is The Debriefed. Where we give you a rundown of everything that's been going on at Dartmouth this week and which has been reported on by The D. First up, ever since the COVID-19 pandemic, students have become increasingly concerned about the mental health resources available at Dartmouth. Following the tragic deaths of two students in the past two weeks, these concerns once again reached a tipping point and student activists partnered with the administration to organize a gathering on the green and designate a day of caring for October 21st. Perhaps the most notable response, though, was the college's partnership with UWill, a teletherapy service that will provide free access to all Dartmouth College students. I sat down with Cassie Thomas, who had the story. Um, Last week, the college made an announcement that following um, a surge of activism in student government and from the mental health uh, union, there will be free 24-7 teletherapy available to students, which is um, what Jess Chiriboga described as filling in the gaps of Dartmouth's current mental health uh, resources and offerings for students. Um, it's not something that you need to schedule ahead of time. You can choose your provider based on different categories like gender, uh, ethnicity, age, things like that. Um, and it's also available to students on off terms and leave terms. So that's all exciting developments in the wake of a lot of um, tragedy, publicity around mental health, and uh, admission by the college that we're in a crisis. Right. No, absolutely. Um, So this seems like a little bit of maybe an unprecedented collaboration between the students and the administration in terms of mental health. I think there has maybe been a little bit of discord in the past on the college's response to mental health. Uh, Do you see that as a sign of improvement um, in the relationship between the two? Yeah, I I would see that as a sign of improvement. Best of all, um, something that the student body will really reap the benefits of. Um, But based on... Uh, the announcement last week and the kind of initial reporting that we've done, it really mostly seems like a student-driven initiative, and I think that most of the credit belongs to the student activists who really made this a priority. Um, I'm not sure how this would have developed if it was left up to the administration alone. And so then moving forward, do you think there's still work to be done for the college and on the behalf of student activists? If you know, this is less of a preventative solution. Right. Yeah. Um, the way I see it, yeah, the I think we need to take a look at Dartmouth culture um, and what precipitates a mental health crisis and whether that has to do with, um, you know, cultural culture around work or socialization. Um, maybe Dartmouth students aren't getting access to all the things to live a balanced life. I think those are much harder questions to answer. Um, but they're the ones that we need to take on if we really want to get to the root of the issue. But, you know, it is still commendable that we have come up with um, a solution for for this crisis, even if it is um, not a preventative measure. In other news, the college's endowment shrank by 3.1% for the fiscal year of 2022. This comes after the 46.5% boom experienced last year. We spoke to news managing editor Jacob Streer for more. Jacob wrote an article this week about how Dartmouth College's endowment actually has shrunk this year. Jacob, what does that mean for the college? The college didn't uh, express too much concern about it. Uh, They noted in a Wednesday press release that the negative returns, which were 3.1% negative returns, still outperform wider equity and fixed income markets, um, which have contracted overall in the past year. Um, And the endowment now stands at uh, $8.1 billion. 
Do you know how Dartmouth compares to peer institutions in that regard? I do. I know that roughly um, some peer institutions have much larger endowments. I know that Harvard and Princeton's, for example, are far larger than ours. Um, and then there are other schools that have that have less. Perfect. Um, and what is the strategy behind the endowment at Dartmouth? So the endowment is basically a collection of investments um, in a variety of things like global equity, hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, etc. Um, and that slush fund of investments creates uh, dividends that the college uses to fund some of its activities. And it's also just a, sort of a backup you know, investment pool for the college. And are there, what are the long-term goals now for the endowment? Like, do they want to bounce back, or is there even any need to change anything? Do they expect a bounce back? So while this fiscal year it shrunk 3.1%, last fiscal year it actually grew 46.5%. So you can see that there's always volatility in the market. I think that with this kind of long-term investment strategy, the college is not particularly worried about one year and like a mild shrink. Um, I'm sure that due to the diversification of their assets, like over time, they expect the endowment to grow significantly and continue to fund, you know, a variety of programs at the college. So this fall, uh, The Hood put on the biggest exhibition of Aboriginal art in the United States ever, and it's also the largest display in the Western Hemisphere in the last 30 years. Um, It's a super exciting exhibition that everyone should definitely go check out at The Hood. Heath and I have both actually gone. I went on the opening night, um, and I actually happened to go with an Australian friend, which attracted a lot of other Australians to us, I think, Heath. Um, <laughs> and it meant that we met people from who travelled from Australia, and we'd also met just Australians who'd travelled up from places like Massachusetts just simply for the night because they felt that they this was an exhibition they absolutely did not want to miss. Um, and our colleague Gianna Tatani actually wrote an article on it, so we've interviewed her a little bit more about that. What sort of struck you first when you came in there? Um, there were like, so it's about these people called the Yongwu people from Australia. So there were two um, men there that were actually part of the Yongwu tribe, and they were like playing their ceremonial music and singing while we walked in. So I thought that was really cool. And then Actually, the one guy that was there was actually a big part in curating the entire exhibit, and that's the first time that, like, a Yonglu person has been able to curate. Like, there was a quote on one of the walls that said they didn't even know what curating meant before (laughs) this exposition, so I thought that was really interesting that they involved them. Right, right, right. Did you get to speak to uh, any members of the Yonglu tribe? Yeah, um... As like they tore, they took us through the exhibit and pointed out some of their pieces, and they would like say, "This my grandmother painted this," or like, "This is my great grandfather's piece." Um, so it was really interesting for them to give like an authentic explanation behind each piece. And then I was actually able to speak to Ishmael, who was the one that was really involved in curating it. Can you talk a bit more about the importance of this exhibition? Yeah, so one of the people in the beginning talked about how it's all about relationships and how it's about looking at their history and their, like, deep connection with each other through a lens of our own. And there's another quote when you walk in, and it's um, it just basically says that they can't teach us everything through this ex- exhibit, but they give us, like, a surface view, and that's all we really need to interpret it and respect it with our own vision. So I think that's what it's really all about, is just looking at this with a different lens. What was your favorite piece? Would you have one? I would have to say mine is the, I don't, I forget what it's called, but it was by a woman, and 
it, w- it was one of like the few ones that was by a woman so I thought that that was interesting but it was a painting of all of the different edible like plants um in their territory and so her reasoning behind painting that was to show that like our new generations with like processed foods and like how that's not good for us and so she just wanted to paint like all of the natural things that come from the earth um I also noticed that uh there are some strict rules around the painting style too like there was only one in there that incorporated um strong color that was the mm-hmm. the blue one and they had a whole story behind that um were there any rules that struck you as particularly interesting I uh, guess yeah like like you said like the use of just like the neutral colors mm-hmm. was interesting I don't remember exactly why she could use blue yeah, it was something to do with like an accident she maybe was I think it was yeah. yeah but I think that was one of them and then also just like the designs that they used and how they couldn't take different designs from the other um clan like or the other tribe because mm-hmm. um, they would that would be like taking their special thing so right, right. yeah that's so interesting That's all the news we had for this week, folks. Consider yourselves debriefed. And tune in again next week for our long-form episode on trips. And every week for your weekly rundown of the Dartmouth News. Bye, guys. See ya. There are a few people we want to thank in the making of this podcast. Thank you to our colleagues at the Dartmouth, Cassie Thomas, Jacob Stryer, and Gianna Tatali for amazing interviews. And to our producers, Abby Hughes, John Zappers, Brian Penny, our talented new 26s, Jack Coleman and Eliana Stanford, and last but not least, our executive editor, Lauren Adler.